Wind and Tide. Hello and welcome to Family 360. A podcast exploring all the ways we are family to each other. Each episode welcomes conversations with specialists, artists, and storytellers. I'm Rachel Cram, founding director of Wind and Tide Educational Community. I'm Roy Salmon, audio producer and founder of Whitewater Studios. And together, we're the hosts of Family 360. Find us on our website, family360podcast.com. Or follow us on Facebook or Instagram for wise words from our fabulous guests. And now for this week's episode. Child psychologist Deborah McNamara is dedicated to helping parents make sense of their kids and themselves from the inside out. She provides counseling and educational services to families and professionals around the world, working from the relational developmental approach of Dr. Gordon Newfelt and the world-renowned Newfelt Institute. They have an amazing team. They do. In addition to her sought-after counsel, Dr. McNamara is also the author of the best-selling book, Rest, Play, Grow, making sense of preschoolers or anyone who acts like one. (laughs) (laughs) That tagline humorously speaks to the breadth and the scope of her work. It does. She also recently wrote a kid's book called The Sorry Plane. Which she introduces in this episode, along with a thoughtful discussion on remorse and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. When we approached Deborah for this interview, she generously offered a catalog of topics for us to choose from, and after much consideration we picked our topic for this episode sibling conflict why our kids fight and she has great perspectives to offer she does and so here we go into our conversation with dr deborah mcnamara we hope you find it enlightening and encouraging deborah thank you so much for your time today it is such a pleasure to get to talk to you Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. You have such a wide range of topics we could have discussed today, and you graciously let me choose. And I've chosen the conversation of sibling conflict because that is where I am at in my life today. So I'm I'm coming to this conversation as a learner and as a podcast host. Well, I think if you have more than one child, that is where you will probably live, is thinking about your kids and their conflict, especially as they go from toddler to teenager. Yeah, It's a long journey. Sometimes it feels like a bit of an uphill climb. And when our kids are enjoying each other, the journey is a lot more fun. Yeah, that's very true. And, you know, as a parent, I think you're invested deeply in wanting your children to get along and and to have relationships with each other. What do we do when they have conflict? What is our role in all of that? Mm -hmm. They're all our children, but their relationships between each other can be complex depending upon the personalities involved and the situations that they find themselves in, their own stressors in their own life. Well, you know, I took great comfort in reading your articles to see that not only do your kids have conflict, but also you had conflict growing up as well. So we're all complicit in that complexity. And your writing offers generous understanding for that. Yes. Well, I had four sisters, so I was the eldest of five. And there was lots of conflict. In fact, it's funny, actually, when we get together, how we'll still talk about some of that conflict. And of course, the stories still emerge. I wasn't privy to all of them, especially with my younger sister, where Mm -hmm. there's a 10 years difference. So we had lots of interesting stories to tell people taking food hiding it so that the other you know siblings wouldn't have it you'd open up the drawer to get your toothpaste and there'd be pepperoni in there sometimes you go get an oreo cookie and and they would have licked all the oreo filling inside and just put the wafers back and i just it was incredible you know having the span of 10 years and five children do you all get along well together now 
You know, we do. And I tell my children that the greatest gifts I think that I ever got as a child were my sisters. Hmm. I didn't always feel that way, of course. And some of them I was closer in age to than the others. And so it was natural to play differently with each of them. For the most part, I did enjoy that experience. You know, I feel I can totally relate to that because I am the oldest of four girls myself. And we fought so much growing up. And I remember my mom saying to us, you'll get along when you're older. And I thought we never will. But now they're my best friends. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. We had and, lots and, of know, fights over clothing. That was our big issue. Oh, yeah. You don't lend stuff to your sister. That always begs for an argument. No, but, but they take uh, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even That's though you true. got a lock on your door, they pick it and they go That's in. That's true. And your perfume and <laughs> yeah. your makeup. Yeah. 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 Oh, well, before we jump into this conversation even further, and you've already offered a hint to this, I'd like to open with a question just to learn a little bit more about you. And here it is. I'm wondering, Deborah, is there a story or experience from your childhood that has shaped the adult that you are today? Yeah, there's so many different events that shape me today. One of the ones I would highlight the most is that I just feel so privileged that I grew up at a time when play was just taken for granted. We had incredible adventures. Mm -hmm. Uh, We made up fantasies and stories and spaceships and air guitar and skits. And we'd have garbage picking day back in Ontario where we grew up and garbage picking day, everybody just threw out their garbage on the end of the lawn. And so we would rummage around and find all the garbage and we would set up high jump and track and field kind of events on our driveway. <laughs> on our, That's on our, fabulous. Uh, house. And my mom would be horrified. She'd come outside and find somebody's old gross mattress. And we're like, mom, we're just playing high jump. But it was fantastic. And then my younger sisters, of course, it was more caretaking. So I would do tea parties and stuff like that with them. Hmm. Well, that older sister role, it has such a responsibility to it, but also such an opportunity for learning when you get to stay and play even longer, I think, because you're living life alongside your younger siblings. Yeah, that's very true. Hmm. Well, as we head into the interview today, there's two key areas that I'd love to discuss with you, and those are why kids fight and how we intervene. You actually say, how do we intervene in a way that preserves the dignity of everyone as well as your relationship with each child, which I think is beautiful because often when I intervene, I just want to get it over with. I'm not thinking about (laughs) those lofty goals. So let's start with talking then about why kids fight. What are the reasons that bring conflict into their young lives, their preteen lives, their teen lives, even into adult lives? Mm-hmm. Well, if we look at the root emotion that might drive conflict, there could be many different emotions. Frustration would be the biggest emotion, right? Mm. Frustration that you want something to change or you want something to stop. So frustration is always looking for an answer to solve the problem that's on the table. Mm. I want my sister to share her toys with me. I want my uh, you know, big sister to share her clothes with me. I want my brother to let me hang out with his friends. Like some of these things are going to be futile. Some of them, they won't come to pass. And some of them, your sibling may accommodate. But that might mean for that child who has a desire that there'll be incredible frustration. So what mm. happens to that frustration then? Frustration needs to be expressed. Now you combine that with immaturity 
immaturity in a three-year-old or sometimes an overwhelmed 13-year-old, and you're going to get attacking energy. And that attacking energy, especially in younger ones, will come out physically. And in older ones, it takes a turn towards more verbal. It can still get physical, but uh, takes a turn to more verbal. And, and we can be incredibly wounding with our words, with our sentiments. I don't want you to uh, come to my birthday party. I wish you were my brother or my sister. Mm -hmm. I hate you. Uh, you're stupid. The kind of words that our children can say to each other out of this frustration and attacking energy um, can hurt mm -hmm. because they can't affect change, but they need to find their tears about it. They need to mm -hmm. accept what cannot pass. That's kind of a lifelong pursuit, isn't it? Yeah. Actually, someone said to me once, it sounds like this is the serenity prayer. Oh. Did you take this from the serenity prayer? The, uh, the prayer goes, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, right? The courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah, I see where they were coming from about the prayer. That's the needed perspective. It really is. But our kids don't know that yet. Yeah. They don't understand what the futilities are. This is the tricky dance as a parent, knowing when we have to push in and affect change and where we have to dance our kids to release and to the tears about the things that will not, cannot change. This is where wisdom's required in us. Mm. Yeah. Well, and siblings are instrumental in this early life discovery. I think that we're not always going to get what we want. Yeah, it's very true. It's, you know, your siblings oftentimes force you to have to adapt to the world you can't change. Even their very birth, you know, things change mm. automatically. You don't have your parents quite the same way again. I remember one of my sisters got incredible tummy aches when one of my other sisters was born. You know, just this whole idea that life had changed, the contact and closeness with mom had changed. She was now the middle child instead of the youngest. So, you know, every time we add a new child in, you can see the constellation of the family changes. There's always futility around every door, having to share, right? Having to hear noises, having people in your play, uh, not always being able to get the attention of people that you want to get. Having siblings does push futility in your face in a different way, that's for sure. So many questions about how we resolve that, but we're going to get to that afterwards. So there is conflict because of this futility and frustration. What's another reason for conflict? I think a lot of times I see attachment seeking type behavior, right? So a child is wanting contact and closeness. We would hope that our children would seek out us as adults for that contact and closeness. Sometimes we're not always available. And so the natural place where a lot of our children seek contact and closeness is each other because they're the same as each other. They find the same things funny. They play often at the same level, right? They enjoy the same type of activities often. And so they'll go and seek each other out and you'll get this type of pursuit behavior in one child. The other child may not reciprocate that, you know, I don't want to play with you right now. Quit following me. My sister would come and poke at me and physically try to get me to move in a different direction. And, and of course I would erupt. Mm -hmm. So we can seek attachment out in many different places. And it's very common that siblings would seek it out with each other when they are refuted, when they are thwarted in their attempts, when there is no desire to be together, then you can see eruptions of frustration because mm -hmm. there's nothing that frustrates you more than not being able to have your relational needs met. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and this is why I think we have more than one child. This is why we have, you know, in your case, in your family, five, and my parents with four, because you want them to have that type of relationship. But there can definitely be periods of time where you just can wonder, was this even the right move to make? Because there's so much conflict between them. Yeah. Well, we might need to step back and say, should our children have to seek each other out to get these attachment needs met? Mm -hmm. You know, of course, they will be as siblings, part of a family and being attached to each other. But if there's such a hunger there, I think there's pause for thought as a parent to say, is there some way that I need to step in and take responsibility for this hunger? Have I left my children to their own too much to fulfill each other's needs this way? Mm -hmm. Have I abdicated my role as being the answer some way? Do I need to step in? Do I need to take some of that attachment seeking energy as a cue to get into position that I've dropped the ball here somehow. Hmm. Well, and that's tricky because having our kids play together is part of how we hope to get what we need to do done, like cooking, laundry, yeah. office work. Yeah, no, it's true. I know, right? And and that's often when the conflict begins. Yeah. But we'll address this, I hope, when we yeah. get to your section <laughs> on how we intervene. Gotcha. Good. Okay, so our kids fight because of the need to express frustration, which leads to attacking energy the need for closest and contact. What would be another reason why our children fight? Well, territory. (laughs) Territory and possessiveness. When they get attached to things, you know, the sharing is overrated uh, in their world. I mean, you Mm. get a three-year-old and it's just my toy, uh, my person, my whatever. The capacity to consider someone else's needs actually requires development. And that is usually by the years of five to seven where they can hold into account their own views and their own desires, as well as look at someone else and say, hey, I think they also could benefit fit from this and I care about them and I also want to share. So you can get incredible territorial battles before that because Mm -hmm. this idea of consideration and sharing is just not there. So Mm -hmm. uh, they can be quite fierce in protecting their turf. And of course, it just brings out very primal like behavior. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you'll see it, you know, the scratching, the, the physical fights, the verbal fights that will ensue. And so it takes time to develop this capacity for empathy, for consideration. You can't force it. And of course, we do a lot of forcing, you know, of children to share, but it's not coming from a place of internal development. It's coming from our need to script and have behavior look a certain way. Mm-hmm. So this idea of becoming empathetic and considerate, there's a developmental underpinning that needs to unfold this way. So they can be very territorial and possessive. Sharing is not um, one of their hallmarks, especially in the early years. Well, you mentioned the three-year-old saying, my toy, my person. The word mine starts so early. I I even think of the uh, seagulls in, what's the Disney show? Mine, mine, mine. Finding Nemo. Yeah, Finding Nemo. Uh, That is a word that comes very early in our vocabulary universally. What's occurred within a child that gives access to this claim of mine? Oh, this is such a beautiful developmental story. When a child is born... The first person that they usually refer to, and I'm talking about heterosexual relationships, the first person they usually identify is dada, da, da, da. Now, I remember asking Gordon, well, what about the mother? Like, holy cow, uh, you know, she's on maternity leave, she's breastfeeding. What's going on here? Why isn't mother forefront? And I remember Gordon's answer, and it was beautiful. He said, because the child is not yet seeing themselves as a separate self from the mother. 
in terms of the formation of self, the child is only seeing the distance between themselves as father. Okay, I'm separate from father, da da, and then of course your your own self. Mama comes after that, mm. right? Mama, and then there's me. Mm. But the child is still fused. Now, what comes after mama? You might have different siblings or the dog's names, and they're all interspersed in there. But there's this beautiful development anywhere, usually around two to three, you see one of the most beautiful transformations, I think, in human development, where a child all of a sudden will just come out of the blue. Me. I do. I do myself. Mine. And they say it with such a veracity. I do. We're like, yeah, I know you're there. And you just see this incredible psychological development where we should actually have a birthday for the child to say, welcome to the world psychologically. They've had enough attachment. There is enough brain development where they can now see themselves and then the outside world. And they just announce it with such such possessiveness and territoriality, my mummy, my daddy. And this is the hard part is that it's very easy to have a relationship with a child who doesn't have a will of their own. But as soon as they start saying, I do, I want, you've got a child who has a will, who has a sense of self and who has their own ideas and their own preferences. And what do they say? I want that toy. I want that dog. I want that mummy. And they start asserting this sense of agency. And we just often trip all over it. But I think it's one of the most beautiful points in human development because you see the self finally emerge out of the darkness. It's like they appear. Okay, so just as a quick recap to why kids fight, you've given three reasons so far. You've said it's part of frustration, that notion that you can't always get what you want, Mm -hmm. attachment-seeking behaviors, territorial and possessiveness. Why else do kids fight? One of the big ones that I see that I think seems to be quite invisible is that uh, emotion can be displaced. Mm. Emotion isn't always expressed in the environment in which it was created. So you could have a hard day at school. You could be picked on at school. You could get a bad grade at school. There could be lots of stuff going on for you. And you come home and your sibling will do the smallest of things. Mm. Uh, Opening that doorway to the frustration that you've had to kind of push down on, pack in, because it's not safe to erupt at school. And so at home, you have this this little doorway that opens up with a sibling that just does something annoying. And boom, out comes the wrath. Out comes the foul frustration mm. uh, onto that child. Oh, we all do that. Yeah. We all displace emotion. And to be aware of that frustration moving in us isn't always possible. Sometimes it takes us by surprise. Sometimes our emotions have to work in environments where we have to press down on them in order to concentrate, in order to be civil and social, to bite our tongue. But there has to be a time, and there's usually a time where all those emotions come back. Uh, And often it can be a sibling who's just in the wrong place (laughs) Mm -hmm. at the wrong time, and it it just cascades Mm -hmm. onto them you know like I remember one incident with my kids where 
one of my daughters dropped a water bottle on the other one's toe. Hmm. Okay. Obviously painful. Yeah. The other one just let loose though. And I thought this is disproportionate to the offense. And in tracing it back with her over time, she was actually worried about her dental appointment the following day where she had to have Mm. a cavity filled. Mm. And so this was on her mind. And so as soon as the frustration opened up, it opened up the doorway to all of the frustration that was there. And of course, it provided a means of expression. Mm. And children, it's often like parents, if you have good relationships, there's a sense of trust that this person will be there, Mm. you know. These are my people. And so I think it sometimes makes it a little bit easier for that emotion to come out on top of the person. Hmm. As you describe it, I sense that there is a curiosity that's required on the part of a parent, a detective work into figuring out what's the root of this conflict? What's the bigger story behind what I'm seeing in front of me right now? But that's so hard to do because conflict is stressful. When you start to hear that mom, you know, that tension that comes with it, I find it has a lot of mom moms in it. (laughs) I feel like the up the volume and up the volume until you step in, wanting you to step in. Mm -hmm. The sensory overload of that makes it difficult to take the deep breath and be curious to think, what is it behind what's going on here? Yeah, I I don't I can't do that usually. I'm not very I'm so curious glad to hear in the that. moment. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> it's not like, hmm, let me be curious. Look at them hurting each other. Oh, I'm so curious. <laughs> no, it's like, oh my gosh, I got to get in there and and stop the bleeding. I had this experience when I worked in the counseling unit as well in university. It felt kind of like the mash unit, you know, incoming, oh, and you're like, yes. okay, I gotta triage. I gotta you triage, know figure out what exactly. I'm gonna do. Yeah, no, I'm in triage mode in that. And and that's where the, the things that guide me there is I want to preserve the dignity of my children. Mm-hmm. I want to preserve the dignity and the expression of their emotion, but I can allow them to hurt each other. I mean, I'm not totally in control of that, of course, but I can influence the context. I can influence what's going on in the environment and I can influence through my relationship with each of my kids. So no, I, I think... We oftentimes think we have to do everything very fast and in the moment. And Mm. my goodness, is that ever a recipe for a disaster? Mm. Well, the reality is, too, that if you don't nail it the first time, chances are you're going to probably get about 17 opportunities to retry it a different way over the next week because the same situations come up again and again. So there's that small piece of comfort. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But in the midst of that, incredible humility that you just offered there. You do have some wonderful wisdom on how we do intervene. Mm -hmm. So can we switch then from why kids fight to how we intervene? Well, I think there's a couple things that are helpful to keep in mind or to kind of sit with. And so if we understand conflict as about frustration and expression, I think Mm -hmm. we're going to be guided a little bit better in terms of trying to get to our children's side and Mm -hmm. to try to allow for that in a way that is safe for their relationship. See, it should be safe for them to express frustration, Mm -hmm. right, about a sibling. Yes, Mm -hmm. it is hard to have a sister who doesn't share their clothes. Yes, I can see how that hurt your feelings, whatever it is that we say. They can say those things to us one-on-one. So I think often trying to see this as an emotional problem, not a behavioral problem, is really key. Mm -hmm. It's not about how do I get them to stop hitting. That's obviously a factor. Mm -hmm. But 
what's driving the hitting and how do I work at that level? And using our relationship to to come to the child's side and open up that emotional expression in a safe way. Now, some kids won't be able to get there, nor will they know what their words are for it. And that's why play and moving them to play instead might be a better way to also soften some of those emotions that are bubbling up. Mm. Playing at frustrating, playing at fighting, you know, breaking something, getting something out, destroying something, building something, putting something together, transforming it. Play can often be a softening agent for these kind of emotions as well. So if our children don't have any words for it, maybe what we do is we come alongside and we, we try to move that frustration to some sort of play can you give an example of how you would do that, maybe with a, a four-year-old? So I, what I'm hearing you say is they've come to you telling you, you know, my brother, my sister, they're this, they're that, and I'm so mm-hmm. angry. And mm-hmm. um, how do you shift them from their words into a play situation? Well, yeah, I mean, you'd have to intuitively dance with your child this way and, and understand the level of emotion and have a relationship there so that you could do this. But just for sake of example, you know, a child comes to you and they're upset, you come alongside. This is frustrating. I know that, you know, your feelings got hurt. You'd have to decide whether or not it would make sense for them to play together. And if not, they're going to play on their own for a while. You'd set that up. I've got an idea. Let's go build a tower. Let's uh, go build some blocks. You know, let's go smash it. I feel like I got the smash in me that needs to come out or mm-hmm. let's go outside and ride our bikes you'd have to look for the particular bent of your child in terms of how they get frustration out one of my kids even as a teenager I can see she needs to move fast and movement is a good part of her emotional expression like it really opens that up and so uh, the other day I invited her to a game of cards and I said let's play war Mm. (laughs) let's play war very fast moving war and she's just like yeah actually I really want to play that I'm like oh yeah you need to play that (laughs) well (laughs) we need to play that you know, the, so your your word let's, I'm just thinking that's like let us. And when that's the case, when it's let's play together, you're saying play becomes a safe place for both of you to get to the restoration or release of frustration. Mm-hmm. We all have the play instinct, right? So Mm. yes, that's why we should give so much of this emotion to this place because it preserves our relationships. It it doesn't wound our relationships. There's nothing you get wrong in play, Mm. right? And, and, And the shape of your expression can be contained in play if you need to break something, build something move something. Play can handle all of that. And so this is one of the challenges today. A curious question would be, are we seeing more conflict between our children? Certainly in COVID, there is a suggestion that there is more frustration and this is coming out in lots of places. The research does suggest that. What has happened though, in terms of that frustration and aggression in connection to play. If we had more true play, would we be seeing these levels? And the answer that I would tell you is no, we wouldn't be. The science supports that. We are seeing the bubble up effect from losing the places that took care of our emotion. Mm-hmm. One of our recent episodes is with Dr. Newfeld giving the seven distinctives of true play. So for listeners, go back and listen to that because it's exactly what you're talking about right now. It's so important, so powerful. Okay, so I'm going to act like a point monitor, if that's okay with you, Deborah. Sure. So when intervening in our children's conflicts, your first point is appreciate their need to express frustration. Do you feel like you've talked enough about that point to move on? I think so. It's meant to be a a slice of it, right? It's not meant to be the whole theory. Exactly. And we put links to your work on our website so that people can go find out more about it. So that'll be great. All right. 
what would be another way that we can intervene when our children are in conflict? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things is to step back and to think about, well, what would I do to prevent conflict? How do I increase the caring mm. uh, between my children? Mm. Uh, so often we focus on the behavior we see and we need it to stop and cut it out. But what comes before that? That would be the natural antidote and it would be caring. Mm. So how do we promote caring between our kids? And, and the wonderful thing that we know now through attachment science is that when that attachment is hierarchical in nature, meaning that one takes the lead, one follows. In a healthy marriage, this would switch up. One takes the lead, one follows. You know, that's what we call the division of labor. When it comes to taking care of kids, obviously the adult should be in the lead position and the child should want to follow that adult. When it comes to sibling hierarchy, though, it's also the same. And you may know this as being the eldest of four sisters, is that I was often put in that lead position. Can I count on you to play with your sister? Mm -hmm. Can you take her for a walk? Can you help change her diaper? There was many times I was called on to be the big sister. That mm -hmm. was a constant reminder. Now, that ensures that you are in that beautiful attachment hierarchy. If I am the eldest, then it's going to draw out those beautiful caretaking instincts. It's going to draw out my natural caring, right? Mm -hmm. That I'm more inclined then to want to take care of those that I see as more vulnerable, more needy, and more dependent on me mm -hmm. to be the big sister. One of my daughters had taken her babysitting class and I said, okay, you're ready. I can leave you. I'm going to go to the store and go shopping. Can I count on you to take care of your sister here appropriately, right? Mm -hmm. According to, to what you know. And her demeanor shifted. It was incredible. I got a call at the grocery store. Well, it's become very annoying. Uh, she isn't listening to me. I need the back door to be closed for safety. However, uh, she doesn't want to do this. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, it was just like magic. Mm. This child emerged that was in this beautiful lead role. I am responsible for this now. How do I do this in a caring way? Even if you're running a daycare or preschool, mm. if you have these age differences where you can say, no, you are older. Uh, these are your responsibilities. And we have our younger kids. Uh, let's help them on with their jackets. Uh, sometimes they need some help with their shoes. Do you remember what it was like when you were brand new? Mm. Right? The grade 12s being the answer to the grade 8s that are coming to into the school, mm -hmm. the peer mentoring programs. These are the natural ways that we actually draw out caring and we get ahead of the problems. Mm -hmm. If you've ever met a peer mentor on a playground who feels charged with the responsibilities of helping the younger ones on the playground, you will see tremendous caring, tremendous responsibility. Your job won't be getting in there trying to figure out how to solve conflicts because you've got your answer there. You've got more caring on the playground. Mm -hmm. So Helping our children get into that nice hierarchical relationship and attachment by reinforcing, right? One leads, one follows. Uh, it's just a small miracle when it comes yeah. to uh, increasing the caring mm -hmm. and consideration around when kids are together. What about for those middle kids or the younger kids? There can be that tension of, well, why does she get to be the one that's in charge? Because I'm older than them too. Or the younger ones feeling like, well, when do I ever get to be the one that's in charge? Well, it's just not the eldest that's in charge. Everybody can have a role. Everyone can have a little kingdom that they help with, you know, and that's why we get pets or some representation of that caretaking or a garden. There's mm -hmm. many ways to express your leadership. I would create opportunities all down the line. Mm -hmm. I so often find with my kids that when I truly need them for help, they always step up. Just mm -hmm. the other day, I could not get the zipper on my running jacket to, to go up. And I was so frustrated. And my 15-year-old son came 
came into the room and I was like, can you please get the zipper to go up for me? And he had been kind of grumpy that morning. And right away he was like, totally, mom. And he got down on his knees in front of me. He was like, we can totally get this up. It will work. And I was like, I'm so frustrated because now I'm only going to get a short run in. And he was just like calming me down and got my <laughs> zipper up. I, I just think giving that opportunity to care is so meaningful. It, it yeah. really is a game changer. Yeah, it really is. And it helps them listen to those caring emotions and instincts that are inside of them and allows for that expression. Mm -hmm. Giving uh, feels good and Mm -hmm. helping without getting a reward, without being praised, without turning it into something that's less than altruistic. If we can allow for those spaces for children to care about the things Mm -hmm. that are meaningful to them, yes, it, it changes who they are. Thanks for listening to Family 360. This week, we're with child psychologist Dr. Deborah McNamara talking about sibling conflict, why our kids fight, and how we intervene. In our next episode, we zoom to Scotland for our conversation with author, professor, and mental health advocate, Dr. John Swinton, discussing the human experience of disability and the important distinction between inclusion and belonging. And now back to our conversation with Dr. Deborah McNamara, who is about to describe a third consideration for intervention when our kids are in conflict. All right, allow for expressions of frustration, create a hierarchy of caring. How else can we intervene? Well, I I think one of the biggest things as parents is in the moment, not to play judge and jury. This Mm. is really hard for our relationships. It's hard on them and it's hard on us. If they feel like we're coming alongside or siding with one over the other, if you're siding with a particular person, how children or teens often see it is you are for them. Mm. They don't distinguish the issue from the relationship. And so you are for them, then you're not for me. Mm. And it becomes a question of belonging. It becomes a question of mattering, which is an attachment issue. They may bait you and want you to fix this and to lay down a claim on who's correct or who's not. So it's real important to try to hold on to your relationship. I'm going to help you here. We're having trouble. This isn't working. You're both upset, uh, you know, and just try to find a way through that impasse until you can do some work with each child separately. Mm. I think that's usually the most important way through if things are really heated, not to try to work in those moments. Hmm. Are there ever times where you would see that a child was being wronged and state it? Yeah. Well, sometimes when we get into our incidences, it's very clear to us that things are not even when it comes to the conflict. Mm -hmm. And that can be trying. I think one of the things that helps us is to keep in mind good intentions, that there is care between them, that uh, our frustration got the better of us. And to to state that, I know this was a difficult situation. I know you care about each other. This went over the top. What is important, though, is when you're dropping the infraction flag, as Gordon Neufeld says, right, to state basically what isn't working, what you can't allow, what needs to change. I can't allow us to continue this. This isn't working. I'm going to have to help here. Whatever it is, if it's a younger child or to older teens, mm. is to keep in mind that if you don't say something that indicates that you are taking the lead, mm. and oftentimes dropping the infraction flag indicates you're in the lead. This mm-hmm. is what I see, and I'm going to take care of it. What happens is if one child who's so frustrated 
and doesn't feel heard or seen or understood in this way, they may actually take matters of justice into their own hands. Hmm. And so there needs to be a sense that someone's taking the lead, that someone is going to find a way through, that someone's responsible for that, that something has gone wrong here and that they have been hurt Hmm. and that they will deal with it. When I was on yard duty at a school, oftentimes children would come up to me and say, so-and-so is doing this and so-and-so is doing this. And I'd be like, oh, okay, well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you let me know. Um, I'm going to go deal with this right away. And I said, is there anything that you need from me? And I remember this one little girl, she looked up to me and she said, no, I just needed you to know. Hmm. And and that really is what this is about. I need to know that an adult is going to assume responsibility. Now, I don't need to tell her what I'm going to do. I don't need to met out punishment so that she's satisfied. But I do need to let her know I'm going to take care of this. I can see you're hurt. I can see this didn't work. I am responsible and I'll take the lead on it. I basically, I went to the other child and said, hey, what's going on? I heard there was some troubles. Can you help me understand? Mm. And then I heard their side of the story. Okay, and I can't remember how it resolved itself. But this idea of I just need you to know, I need you to see, I need you to understand. If we don't take the lead, if we don't sometimes acknowledge the infraction, I think we court our children to taking the lead out of our lack of Mm. leadership. Can I ask you another question on that? There can be weeks or even months that, for example, one of my teenagers is just going through their things. They're stressed at school. They've got exams. um, Their their hormones are are moving in. And it can seem like day after day, week after week, they're really hard on their younger sibling. Is there ever a place to come into that younger sibling and say, and and I'm aware that you don't want to sound like a judge or jury, but say you're in a hard place right now, like, to to maybe give a perspective that uh, doesn't sound judgmental, but lets them know, I see you're in a tough place, but your older sibling is going through this stage of life. Is there any mm-hmm. space for that? Well, yes, absolutely. And I think this is really what's important in the coming back around and debriefing and coming to each children's side. Like when we step in to deal with an incident, we're really just triaging. We're trying to find a way through that preserves dignity, keep our attachment, do no harm, drop the infraction flag, whatever it is that we need to do in this moment to find our way through the Mm -hmm. impasse. It's a Mm -hmm. mess. Get through it with as much (laughs) dignity for everybody as you can with as much leadership. But when you come back around to a child, I always try to keep in mind, we don't need to work the incidences, that we wait for the emotion to come down and to be lower. And then we move in. We move into the child in the context of relationship, meaning we go in, we collect the child. Can you get to hello? Can you come to their side? Can you bring them a cup of peppermint Mm. tea? That's what I do with my kids. Can I help you with your homework? The dog wants to visit you. However it is that you move in to collect the child, look for signs of receptivity. Is that child open to you? Is the emotion still lingering? This is not a good time. You're looking for receptivity. We do this in our Mm -hmm. adult relationships. We're always looking for receptivity to deal with conflict. We're not going to just barge in because we need to get it off our chest. So look for receptivity. Come back around to the child. Come alongside. That was hard today. How are you feeling about everything? My sense is you're still pretty frustrated. Those words, I imagine, would have hurt. Mm. Like, touch gently into the bruise, you know, or, or if the child seems to have the capacity for it, name it as it is. But use your relationship to come back around to those incidences, especially if a child has been wounded. I would often say to my kids, please don't take that 
that into your mm-hmm. heart. That is someone else's frustration. Mm-hmm. It comes out on you. This is what we do as we can take our frustration out on each other. This also exists inside of you. Mm-hmm. And so don't take it into your heart. Uh, your sibling is having a hard time. That's my responsibility. I'm working on this. You can be as frustrated or upset. I am here to talk about it. Whatever the maturity level of the child. But the, the message is, is don't take this into mm-hmm. your heart. And I think we need to take it into our heart. If there really is a lot of wounding between our kids, what I found in private practice as a counselor is that some of the greatest wounds in a family is not just from your sibling, but from that child seeing and feeling that they weren't taken Mm -hmm. care of because their parents didn't step in. And that's the worry. And that is Mm -hmm. such a big Mm -hmm. wound. So step in. Step in. Uh, I see what's happening isn't okay. I'm here for you. I'll take care of you. Let me hear whatever is going on. Move to play, move to tears, move to whatever you need to do to take care of that child's Mm. heart. You move to the other one who's full of attacking energy. How can I help? You seem so frustrated. What's going on? Help me understand. Here's a cup of peppermint Mm. tea. And I made muffins because we need muffins when they're, it looks like you're overloaded with work, Mm. right? I don't want to talk about it. That's okay. I'll be here. And you you bide your time. You move in and out. But you're looking for receptivity. You're warming each child up. You put the focus on your relationship with each child instead of focusing on getting your kids to get along. Mm. That's where you get your caring. You put them back into right relationship, Mm. not expecting them to figure it out. Mm. Well, and what kind of pressure would it be for us as adults if somebody was staring at you saying, you got to work this out? You know, it's, yeah. it's too much sometimes in those moments. Well, they've already revealed that they can't handle it because they're already erupting. And then we say, well, you have to handle it somehow better. You've got to somehow magically pull out some insight that you've obviously going to find now, even though you're losing yeah. it. <laughs> it's not even logical. Yeah. It's not logical. Uh, well, you've just run through this list of very wise and articulate sounding phrases, very logical, that I'm now <laughs> scrabbling to remember. I think that we can worry that we will step in to intervene and do the wrong thing, uh, say the wrong thing, scrambling for our focus of intent in that moment, which seems to get very blurry when our kids are in conflict. Yeah, well, when we're worried about doing it wrong and we're parenting from a place of alarm, then yes, of course, then our children can't feel we're leading Mm. them, right? So I would say the idea that we would be perfect will paralyze anybody. So just take that off Mm. the table, move in. So when I'm in those situations, I'm not running through a checklist in my head. I'm trying to think about my intentions of preserving my relationship with my children. I'm trying not to add more frustration to what is already a burning fire frustration. Mm. And I'm trying to find a way through to triage, to prevent more injury, to prevent more harm, and get my children into a place where I can work with whatever it is that's going on. Or, you know, sometimes we just need to go to bed. Sometimes you're just hungry. Just try to fix what's not working. So... In terms of intervening, though, there can be some helpful scripts that I, I have found over the years just to keep in mind. And again, I encourage everybody just to, you know, think about their intentions when they're moving into sibling conflict and to just create some scripts of your own. But mine would be simply to say, this isn't working. I can't allow this. There's so much frustration here right now. You're all upset. I see that. I'm going to help you with that. No, we're not going to tackle this right now. No, we're not going to get into it. I will talk to you all later about it. And those would be just some of the ways that that I could remember <laughs> who I wanted yeah. to be 
in that moment. And, and, you know, it's, it's interesting when I would say things like, we're not going to talk about it now. It, it cued me up. No, don't get into it, Deb. This is not going to work right now. You know, we're all upset. This isn't the time to deal with it. It was also cueing me up and holding me in place so that I wouldn't be adding more injury, more frustration, which I don't mm-hmm. always do, but you know, and that's when you have to come back around. And that's the hard thing is when you have to come back around and you've blown it somehow. I always start with how I blew it. Mm. And sometimes I won't get to whatever the issue was is because I've blown it. I got frustrated. I added to your frustration. I'm sorry for that. Yeah, that's a very powerful moment, though. I can remember times in my life distinctly that my parents came back afterwards and said, I'm so sorry. I did not deal with that well. I have no idea what the situation was. That thought has long gone. But the impact of them coming back and apologizing to me, that's what sticks. And it's so meaningful. It's it's so powerful because what it feels like to me and what I know it is through science is you're taking the shame off the child and saying, this does not belong on you. Uh, those words, my actions are not a reflection of you because children are looking to us all the time to get a sense of who they are. You know, am I significant? Do I matter? And when our words and our conduct convey you are the problem, then they're carrying that for us. That's just shame is there's something wrong with me. So when we come back around and we say, I blew it, I was frustrated, I took it out on you, I apologize. And you may need to be mad at me for a while. That's okay. We'll get through that. I know it hurt. And I'm here and you just continue on taking care of the child and get on with business. You don't need to self-deprecate or grovel and make sure, are you okay? You know, do you forgive me? Just get back to taking care of them again. But remove that shame that said there's something wrong with you because I had to act that way. Uh, Holy cow, is that ever a toxic thing that our children have to carry? And that's the legacy of shame. Just picking up on apologies, you have written a beautiful book for children called The Sorry Plane. Of all the topics that you could have written a book on, and I I hope and believe you're going to write many more for children, what made you start with that, that importance of this apology of, you know, really what you're talking about right now? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, a personal reason is that my daughter at the age of three and a half, created the sorry plane when she didn't want to say sorry. She kept telling us that the sorries were all gone. They're underneath the bed. They flew in the garbage. And finally, they were on the sorry plane going to Paris, eating French fries and French toast, and they weren't coming back. So (laughs) she is, yeah, three and a half. Were you asking her to say sorry and she was telling you they were not there? Because I said, does anyone have any sorries? And one child had sorries and she did not. And so I said, where did they go? Because I don't want to force it, right? I just, I was curious, where did they go? So she came up with the sorry plane and she said, I just didn't want to say sorry. So I just said they flew out the window, mom. So that's the personal side of it. So I thought it was kind of an interesting view from a three and a half year old who is in conflict 
but doesn't have this caring inside of them. And they know darn well they don't have the caring. They have such integrity. I will not say sorry when I don't feel remorse. Which which there's something that we can take from that as adults as well. I know. That's the whole point, right? And then juxtapose with what I know through developmental science about one of the most important emotions that helps us grow and become fully human and humane, socially responsible individuals capable of caring, consideration, all the things that we want for our kids. And it boils down to the root emotion of caring. And we have such a behavioral view of caring. We think we can teach it. We think we can force it. We go about rewarding it. We praise or we take away things. All of those things erode true caring. And we encourage our children to have caring performances Mm. that are devoid of any Mm. meaning. Manners must have meaning behind them. If you say sorry, there must be remorse. If you say thank you, there must be Mm. gratitude. If you say I love you, I hope there is deep caring behind it. And so it came out of a need and a desire to ensure that we understand that we must preserve caring and authentic presentations of caring. And in our haste, as parents to get children to look mature, to act mature, that we don't force contrived performances on top of them out of our own needs. But respect development, caring is there, they're born with it. We have to facilitate it, promote it, make sure the words match the meaning, you know, and give it time. Kids will get back to their caring as my daughter does in the sorry plane. She draws her sister a picture of the balloon that popped and gave her a peppermint and gave her a hug. And to her, that was caring. And her sister felt it as caring and felt it as a sorry that it was. That's such a good story. Yeah. And I'm just thinking when there is a sorry, however we express it, sorry, plain or otherwise, the other side of that is going to be forgiveness, which like sorry, you can't force or reward or praise. How does that fit in as we help navigate the conflict between our kids? Yeah, well, forgiveness is an interesting developmental turn. And that happens usually between the ages of five to seven, where forgiveness requires you to be able to hold on to two competing emotions at the same time. One side of you is really frustrated that something has happened or that you've been wounded in some way. The other side of you also feels caring, Mm -hmm. though, caring about the relationship. When you have been hurt, it takes a tremendous amount of caring to finally get to forgiveness. Judith Herman had the best definition of forgiveness that I've heard. She works a lot in trauma. And it is, I forego getting even. Mm. I forego getting even. It doesn't mean that the wound disappears. It's just that it has been allowed to mix with caring, which gives rise to this beautiful temperament of forgiveness. So it is maturity, and we would do far better in just getting our kids to their caring, getting to their remorse, and getting to expressions of this, and eventually knowing that time is meant to deliver some mixing here. But my goodness, this takes a lot of energy, time, focus, reflection. We're in far too much of a hurry. We throw these concepts around without really understanding what they actually require of us developmentally. Mm. Amazing answers, Deborah. Thank you. Uh, Now, I like to close the interview with one last opportunity for kind of a really uh, kind of, you know, if you could say one last thing to parents in one minute, what would it be on this topic? Is there something that you haven't discussed yet that comes to your mind? Like, 
one last piece of encouragement you'd want to offer maybe to parents okay. as we live within the daily realities of our kids in conflict? Yeah. I think that is just to remind ourselves that being the answer to one child is daunting enough. And then to have more than one child and trying to be the answer to all of them. This is formidable in many ways, uh, balanced with everything else that we also have to uh, take care of. And in those moments when your children are fighting, I would often feel inside of myself, well, I've got to protect that child. They're being harmed. And then it would dawn on me, well, it's my other child that's doing the harm. And I would feel these competing emotions inside of me. Who needs me? How do I protect both of my kids? How do I take care of both of them, right? Because they're both mine. It's so easy to just go for one that needs the protection because in your head, there is a sense sometimes that one, you know, the loudest one or the the one that's Mm -hmm. bleeding or seems injured. So these can be tough Mm -hmm. situations. Just pause long enough to remember that you need to lead and to anchor yourself into that place of, I don't want to lose any child here in terms of my relationship, Mm -hmm. yet I must lead through a difficult situation. I have to be the answer to it. And when we can take care of our relationship with our kids this way, when we can preserve that, when we can preserve their caring, then we can massage the relationship between them. So work on your relationship, keep that strong, and proceed always from that place. Hmm. Deborah, it's hard to end, but if I don't, I'm going to need to edit out far too much of this conversation to fit into our episode <laughs> timeframe. So I'm going to put aside a long list of questions I still want to ask perhaps for another time. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thanks so much, Rachel. It's lovely to be here with you. I, I mean, it. we definitely have to have you back. You are so articulate. You're very easy to talk to and you have great oh, questions. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Roy. Thanks so much. That was wonderful. Thank you so much, Deborah. Okay, quick question for you. What stuck out in your mind most from this conversation with Deborah? <laughs> You're trying to get a spontaneous, a naturally yeah, quick, quick. flowing banter out of me, and I'm, I'm just kind of freezing at the well, moment. Well, you've worked with her words in production for over a week, and several mm-hmm. times you have quoted her to me, so I'm sure you have some thoughts. Oh, I do. I do. It's just hard to crank them out when spontaneous yes. solicited. I get that. It's tricky. Well, listen, I found her very articulate. Mm, very. And her banter back and forth with you about being old sisters was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. And I really engaged with the whole section on apologies and forgiveness. Oh, that was really interesting. And helpful. And she had that really solid quote on what forgiveness meant. It was, um, do you remember? Not, not getting even. Forgoing, getting for even. going right. She, she, she was, was a, a great guest. Oh, she was. And as you do for our episodes, you produce some music to accompany her words. I think you referred to it as quirky pop yeah. music. <laughs> Something like that. A bit of levity, a bit of seriousness, and a little bit of dissonance, like any sibling relationship. Oh, I like where you went with that. Well, we're going to end with some of the music Deborah inspired in you and the serenity prayer she quoted, just to give listeners a chill space before switching us off. And we're calling it appropriately chill space. Enjoy.
the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. I'm Rachel Cram. I'm Roy Salmon, and thank you so much for listening to Family 360. 360.